But let's read together First um, Thessalonians chapter 2. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we have boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any de- attempt to deceive But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so to speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is our witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own dear selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work day and night, or night and day, that we might not be a burden to, to any of you. While we proclaim to you the gospel of God, you are witnesses And God also, of how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Let's pray. Father, I pray that as we study tonight that you would bless us, that you would bless each and every one for coming out and that we would learn from your word, be equipped by your word, grow in your word and be changed by your word. Amen. Amen. So in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, I think that there's there's some lessons for us here in ministry and ones that may well be very helpful to us. And He uh, speaks in chapter 1 of their faith and their example and how the word of God has gone out from them and how they've shared the gospel. And in chapter 2 he says, For you yourselves know, brothers, brothers and sisters, uh, of course, is, is meant by this, that our coming to you was not in vain. Now, vain and vanity and in the, the way it's intended here simply means that our coming to you was not empty. It was not without fruitfulness. That's the issue here. So when he says our coming to you was not in vain, what he means is our coming to you did bear fruit. It wasn't a waste of time. It was, there was value and worth and accomplishment that came from our coming to you uh, Thessalonians, coming to you in Thessalonica. So that is the, uh, the premise of what follows. Now, when, when Paul says, our coming to you was not in vain, it's a bit like when the angel says, fear not. Why does an angel say, fear not? Because the instinctive thing to do when one an angel shows up on your doorstep is to go, oh my goodness, an angel, and to fear. So there, there is the command to fear not because there is a tendency to fear. And so when he says to them, I want you to know, or you, you encourage them, you, you yourselves do know that our coming to you is not in vain, is he's assuring them. He's saying, you know this, that there was a purpose and there was fruitfulness and there was value and accomplishment that came from our coming. But there is an implication, I believe there, that there might be a tendency to think that it wasn't a huge success. That's why he has to explain to them why it was a success and why it wasn't in vain. So let's have a look. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we have boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. And so what he's saying is, in contrast to the success of the mission, they had come from a previous mission in Philippi, where there have been suffering and where they have been shamefully treated. 
And he says, even though that was the case, as you know, we have boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. In other words, here's the lie of the land. Paul and his associates had been to Philippi. And while they had been ministering in Philippi, they had suffered much and they had been harshly treated. They'd suffered for the sake of the gospel. That there they are and they're trying to do the work of God. They're trying to, to bring the gospel to people. They're trying to minister to people. They're trying to, 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 to do all they can. And, and Philippi, and we could read about it in Acts 16, but we won't get distracted there. But you can read about it there. But they, but they went through hard times. It was a struggle. And Paul was there and, and he suffered hugely. Now, it's very easy for us to read in the Bible about suffering and to show no empathy to the writer, to the person being spoken of. Because there is this gap so often between us and the scripture. Like if, if, you, if you came to, or if your friend came to you and said, oh, I'm suffering terribly and here are my circumstances, and you were to tell them of your woes with tears in your eyes, then a good friend will say, come, give me a hug. Tell me all about it. What can I do for you? How can I help you? Because they're there in front of you, and they're immediately there, and, and, and there's no distance between you and them. But when we read about suffering on the pages of Scripture, it's very easy for us to be distant. Well, Paul, when Paul talks about suffering, he is an expert in suffering. Paul doesn't say, you know what, I was trying to get to work on the five this morning and some guy was going through so slowly and then somebody cut me up and I'm ten minutes late for work and my day's just been ruined. Hashtag suffering. You know, Paul, Paul does not use the word suffering in an inappropriate fashion. He knows what it is to suffer. So when he says... You guys are aware of the suffering and the shameful treatment that we've received. Then he, you know that whatever you would call suffering and whatever you would call being shamefully treated, that Paul has suffered far, far, far worse than that. The reality is, is that Paul has had horrendous time. Now why do I take the time to say this? I take the time to say this because I want us to empathize with Paul. I want us to know that when we suffer greatly and when we're shamefully treated, the instinctive thing for us to do is to bail. If we feel that someone's treated us badly, we don't want to spend time with that person. If we feel like that this was a waste of time doing something, then we don't bother doing it again. That what we want to do is we want to, to basically react to our suffering and react to our shameful treatment by saying, well, there's no point in me doing that. And we give justification for such decisions. We talk about how, well, we need to make the most of the time that God's given us. And here I am pouring my life out into this, and and there's no fruit, and there's no no, um, accomplishment, and, and I'm treated badly, and I'm not wanted, and I'm not respected. So why would I waste my time there? And perhaps we, when it comes to things like shameful treatment, we might use modern day uh, expressions like the need for self-love and things such as that. But either way, what we do is we've, we instinctively feel the need to remove ourselves from situations that have been A, unproductive, and B, emotionally painful. Of course we do. It's as, it's as real and as valid in one sense as the fact that when you touch a kettle and you burn your hands, you don't want to then put your other hand on the kettle to check if it's warm still. Because that would just be stupid. You just burnt yourself once, why would you burn yourself again? So the Apostle Paul is saying, well, here we are, we're in Philippi, and we've given ourselves to the ministry, and we poured our lives out into the ministry, and all that's happened has been suffering and shameful treatment, so why on earth would we go to another town where we're going to suffer and be shamefully treated again? But what he says is, even though that was the case, we still, with great boldness, came to declare the gospel of God to you. It's like, well... Was it better this time, Paul? Was it that in Philippi you suffered and you were shamefully treated, but now here in Thessalonica 
it's all good and they received you warmly and everything was fantastic. Uh, 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 uh. When you read about Paul's time in Thessalonica, you'll realize that it wasn't much of a good time at all. And Paul summarizes that very briefly in the expression, in the midst of much conflict. There was conflict, much conflict, in Thessalonica when he preached the gospel, just as there was in Philippi. He was rejected, he was pushed away, he was treated badly, he was persecuted, people wanted to kill him, and he was a victim, a sufferer for the sake of the gospel. Point number one. What if Paul had learned his lesson from Philippi and said, I burnt one hand already. There's no point in burning the other hand. And he said, you know what? We'll just call it a day. We'll go back to somewhere where we've been received. We'll go and minister in a church there. We'll go where we're valued. We'll go where we're wanted. We'll go where there isn't conflict. What would then happen? Well, for the first answer to that is this, that those in Thessalonica who believed on the gospel and were saved wouldn't have heard the gospel. The second answer is, we wouldn't have two books of the New Testament. You see, we cannot put our self-preservation above the gospel. One thing that we've seen in this COVID era is that sadly the majority of Bible-believing Christians have put their well-being and their safety above the gospel. Now, for many of you, that doesn't apply because you never thought you were in danger in the first place. But there are people who genuinely feel that there was danger of sickness and death by coming to church, and so they didn't come to church. To them, that was reasonable. Paul says, well, I went to minister in this town, and I suffered, and I was shamefully treated. So what are you going to do? I'm going to go to another town and let it happen all over again. Why would you do that, Paul? Because I need to preach the gospel boldly. These people need to hear the gospel. And I've said this again and again, and I want to say it on record, and I want to say it clearly, and I want to express it in the context of this passage. That You've heard me use the expression many times in this COVID era that I think what COVID has done is it, it, it has exposed a low ecclesiology. A low ecclesiology. In other words, an ecclesiology is the, the doctrine of the church, the study of the church. What is church? Who's in charge of the church? How should church run? What's the purpose of the church? What do we do in a church? What's the church exist for? That's ecclesiology. So my, my, my thesis, as it were, my proposition has been that, that the people who haven't come to church in the midst of COVID, it's not an issue so much of COVID. It's not an issue so much of, of safety. It's not an issue so much of, of government and submitting to government. But ultimately, when all the smoke screens dissipate, it's an issue of a low ecclesiology. In other words, their view of church is lower than it should be. And, and let me give you some more specifics on that, okay? Let me give you some specifics. One thing I've tried to teach you very clearly from my first year here in the book of Ephesians, and I've consistently preached again and again, and as we've come to this period of time where it's been exposed through COVID providentially, that people just don't get this, I've tried to say it more and more frequently and more and more clearly and more and more loudly. And that is the fact that we are all ministers. That my job is not the minister. I'm not the minister of the church. I am a minister of the church. My job in my ministry is to, as a teacher, is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So I do the equipping so that the saints can be ministered. And what people just don't seem to understand is this. That when you come to church, you don't come to church for you. It, it, it is this, it's this quantum shift in thinking that I think the evangelical church has just woefully misunderstood, doesn't comprehend, doesn't get, and quite frankly probably doesn't care about, and it has been exposed in the midst of the COVID era. That most people come to church because I need to be fed. I need to learn. I need to grow. I need to change. Now, none of those things are untrue. 
You do need to come to church. You do need to be fed. You do need to be equipped. You do need to change. You do need to grow. You do need to have the word of God. You do need fellowship. You do need all of these things. And you cannot be healthy unless you have them. But that's not really the main issue when I talk of a low ecclesiology. The main issue is that you should be coming to church because other people need you to be fed. So that you can be equipped to minister to them. Other people need you to come to church that you might fellowship with them and minister to them. Other people need you to come to church so that you might minister to their needs rather than you coming to church to have your needs ministered to. It's the absolute basis of what church is. Church is about us being equipped for ministry and us ministering together that we might grow together. If we don't come to church, I don't care if you have, you know, live streams and this and that and what have you. You don't, that's not the same thing. If you think it's the same thing, then, you know, why in the midst of COVID live in the same house as your spouse? Go and live somewhere different and just talk to them every day through, through a computer screen. Anyone who's done long distance relationships will tell you that is not the same thing. Absolutely not the same thing. And, and, you know, and that isn't to say that there aren't some who are particularly vulnerable for a particular period of time and what have you. That isn't to say that if you were sick with flu, I would expect you or even want you to be at church. It's simply to say that we cannot have a situation where Christians don't go to church for a year and they simply say, well, the government told me, or I'd be at risk, or, or, or things to that effect, or other, others would be at risk, and just think it's okay to go without church for a year. The Apostle Paul went to Philippi and suffered and was shamefully treated. And he knew that by going to Thessalonica, at a bare minimum, he was going to suffer and be shamefully treated. And he knew that there was every possibility that he would die. This is the Apostle Paul, who was stoned to death, but they just cut it a few stones short, without meaning to, and he was able to get up and to go away. I want you to understand, there's no indication in the text that the Apostle Paul experienced a miracle. There's no indication that he died and was resurrected. There's no indication that he sort of got stoned and they said, oh, he's dead, let's leave him. And then he kind of said, aha, I'm fine, suckers, and got up and walked away. What would have happened is that he, at a time without the medical advances that we had, would have gotten up with broken bones and bruised body and internal bleeding, having been left because they literally thought he was dead. And it would have taken him months and months and months and months to have recovered and he went off and did the same thing in the next place. Do you understand what I mean by low ecclesiology? You think that the Apostle Paul has some sort of calling that we don't have? In the sense of his apostleship, absolutely. In the sense of him being a minister and what ministry means and how important ministry is, then no, he's not. And you say, well, come on, the Apostle Paul's ministry is far more important than my ministry. Well, yeah, sure, I'll grant you in one sense that's the case. You're unlikely to have an impact on the world that the Apostle Paul had. You certainly won't be writing any books of the New Testament. But can we just maybe agree on this? That Jesus Christ suffered and died so that you would be saved? Because before the foundation of the world, God chose you and prepared for you in advance works that you might walk in them to glorify his name. I say that makes your ministry important. If you're a Christian, you were saved for ministry and you were saved for works, Ephesians 2.10. And your ministry and your work is important. Your life, if you are a Christian and you are still breathing, has value. And that value is not to you. It is predominantly for the glory of God and it is secondarily and more immediately for the sake of others around you and the others most immediately around you are those in your home and in your family and those in your church family and if you're not attending a church and part of a church family you cannot be the minister that God has called you to be does that all make sense
I hope that's clear. And so we find ourselves here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, looking at Paul boldly declaring the gospel to the Thessalonians in the midst of much conflict. Verse 3 he goes on and says, For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so to speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. Now, I, I think that the most important word for us to get, the, to, to get in verse 3 is the first one. It's four. When you see the word therefore, you want to know what it's there for. The four here connects to the previous section. This is not a separate verse in isolation. It's a verse that is connected to the previous one. In other words, Paul, why would you go to this place and preach with boldness in the midst of much conflict, having previously suffered and been treated shamefully? And Paul says, well, here's the reason why. For our appeal, that is the appeal of the gospel, the declaration of the gospel, their appeal saying, come and believe in Christ, come repent of your sins. That appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. There's three separate things that the appeal of the gospel does not spring from. And if we understand these three things, look at me doing a three-point sermon, kind of. If we, don't, if we understand these three things, we'll understand why the need for ministry in the midst of suffering and conflict needs to go on unabated. So let's have a look at the three things. Here's the three things that Paul says that their appeal comes from and why we should continue to minister in the midst of conflict. Number one, it does not spring from error. The gospel is true. The gospel is true. Friends, we've entered an era, more than any other before it, I believe, where comfort, coziness, and being made to feel good is more important than what is true and what is not true. For generation after generation after generation after generation, in culture after culture after culture after culture, people have been prepared to give up huge resources and time and even their lives for the sake of right and the sake of truth. Even unbelievers, people going to war to protect the right to freedom. We now live in an era where people won't get out of bed unless it's, unless it's worth their while. We're entering a period of time where truth doesn't matter. Listen, the number one reason why Paul had to preach the gospel, even if it would mean him dying, even if it would mean him, perhaps for him, worse than dying, staying alive and suffering terribly as he did so. The reason he was prepared to do that is because the gospel is true. The gospel is true. It's true that Christ died on the cross for the sins of all who would place their trust in him. That's true. It's true, as Peter said in Acts, that there is therefore no other name on heaven or earth by which man is saved other than the name of Jesus Christ. That's true. So it doesn't matter if I suffer. These people have to hear the gospel. And I have to preach the gospel to them because the gospel is true. And what it's saying is true. It's not just that they have to hear truth per se. It's that the, it's that the, the reality of the gospel is true and thus the consequences of it not being preached is huge. It's monumental. The consequences of us not ministering is huge. This is something we've got to comprehend about ministry. I'm going to say it again and again and again. If you're here for the next decade, you're going to get sick of it. And I will not apologize, not even once. But if you are a Christian, then you have a huge value and worth 
not in who you are, but in the fact that God chose you from before the foundation of the world because he had works that he prepared beforehand for you, not me, not the person next to you, not your friends, not your pastor, not your spouse, not your children, no one, but for you to walk in them. And your ministry, whatever it is, is a ministry that is of value and worth. The gospel is true, and so it must be proclaimed. And there are consequences if it's not. So Paul had to do it. The problem is, is that we don't think that our ministry is important enough. People left this church because they were upset Upset about COVID restrictions, upset we didn't do what they wanted, upset over this, upset over that. And when they leave, there are consequences in that their ministry here ceases. And people lose out and people miss out. And in many cases, it was a case of, well, we don't even know where we're going to go. Or we're going to go somewhere where there'll be less opportunities to minister and we understand that. Friends, I'll be frank, that's shameful. The, re- the reality is, is our very purpose of being here on this earth is that God has works prepared for us to do. So we need to be doing them. And that is what I mean by a high ecclesiology. It's understanding our own value and worth insofar as God has called us to ministry and we need to be doing it. Because quite frankly, lives are at stake. And I don't say that lightly. Even if you are not called to be an evangelist, you can share the gospel. And even if you don't get an opportunity to share the gospel, just a word of encouragement, praying for someone. Maybe you have a ministry to prayer. Maybe you have a ministry in other areas. And and what you do makes a difference to people's lives. And it can make a difference sometimes in physical life and death. And sometimes it makes a difference in emotional life and death. And you have no idea of it often. But your ministry is important. And so the gospel is true. And because it's true, it must go out. And the word of God for you, what your ministry is true as well. In the sense that, in the same way that the true gospel is going to have an impact on the world. And that impact needs to happen. Your ministry is going to have an impact on the world. And that needs to happen. No, you're not going to write books of the New Testament. You probably won't go off and be a missionary wherever. And you may not plant multiple churches. But you know what? The work that you've been called to is important. And I know it's important because Jesus shed his blood so that it could happen. So you don't have any right to tell God that he shouldn't have sent his son to die for you and for your ministry. You don't get to say that. That's blasphemous. Your ministry is of value. Paul recognized that the gospel was true. And because the gospel was true, it needed to be preached. Your ministry needs to be spoken of as well needs to be spoken of in the same in the same it needs to be viewed in the same way because God's calling of you was to to do something that was without error let me just say as an aside as we move on from this point this morning someone came to visit our church and they told me they said I went I went to a Christian group a bible study about 5 years ago and when I was there at that bible study there was a lady there and she said that she had cancer. And she said that she was done with treatment. She wasn't going to get any regular treatment. She was going to treat it her own way, alternatively. And that she was going to trust in God in the midst of that. And that's what she was going to do. And you know, people treat, it's not about cancer. You treat cancer however you like to treat it. But that's how she chose to do it. Anyway, this, late, this girl was saying that this person really impacted upon her. And she hadn't seen her. You know, she's seen her five years ago. And just every now and again, she'd come to her mind and she'd pray for her. And she think of her again, I wonder how she's doing, I pray for her. I wonder how she's doing, I pray for her. She came to church today and she saw her for the first time in five years, still alive and very, very well and healthy. That's ministry, folks. If she hadn't have gone to that Bible study that day, then there was a whole bunch of prayer that wouldn't have happened for that person. And if that person hadn't come to church today, then the visitor wouldn't have been encouraged 
in the value of their prayers over the years. It's a, it's a silly little providential example. But do you see how ministry works? We can't quantify it. We can't see it. We can't understand it. But it's a value. The second thing that Paul says here is that the appeal of the gospel doesn't spring from impurity. In other words, there's nothing within them that is seeking any gain. He's not preaching the gospel to become the pastor with the expensive Rolex or, or, or the TV show or the, or the big following. Paul, I mean, it's crazy, isn't it? Because here we are talking about Paul and his writings and we, we, we read his, his letters and we study them and we spend years and years of our lives studying Paul. And he's like the most significant person in Christianity outside of Christ, pretty much. And yet he ends his life and he says to Timothy in his final letter, almost everyone has deserted me. He didn't get the fame and the fortune. He ended his life, at the end of his ministry, in a cell, imprisoned, struggling to see, struggling to work, just desiring to do more study, to know God better. Even at the, <laughs> He's finished his last letter and he's still asking for scrolls so that he can study and know God better. Everyone's deserted him. All the churches he's planted are struggling with sin and disarray. And he goes on the road to Rome to appeal to Caesar and tradition tells us he was beheaded on the way. He never got those things. And he says to them, it's not with impurity that I appeal to you. I'm not trying to get anything. There's no, there's no bad motive within me here. The gospel is true. You need to hear it. I'm going to preach it. Might I humbly suggest that we need to check our hearts regularly to make sure that our desire to minister has no impurity. Good ministry has no impurity. We don't want people to see us ministering and to think that we're better because we're doing it. We don't want to do our ministry for the praise of people. We don't want to do our ministry for any benefit, be it practical, physical, financial, whatever. We don't do ministry for that reason. We do ministry and we serve because God saved us to do ministry and serve, to glorify his name so that we might be transformed in the act of ministry. That's why. And he expands on these points as we go through. But for now, let's us simply suffice with this introductory statement that it is without impurity, it does not spring from impurity, the appeal of the gospel. And thirdly, there is no attempt to deceive. Paul isn't trying to pull a fast one on them. And you can see how that fits in so nicely and dovetails with the previous two. If the gospel is without error, and if his motivation is pure, then there is there no attempt to deceive. You have the two previous things combined in this one. Somebody who deceives gives falsehood with bad motive. Paul says, I have truth, I have good motivation, therefore there is no desire to deceive. So if you want, rather than seeing it as three points, you could see it as two points with a summary of the two in the third one. Paul was seeking with the right heart and on the right basis to preach the gospel. And he says, but, verse 4, just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted uh, with the gospel, so to speak, not to please man, but to please God, who tests our hearts. Now this is important. God has entrusted them with the gospel. Now obviously there is an extent to which the apostles were entrusted with the gospel that is an extent to which we are not entrusted with the gospel. Their ministry is different than ours. But as we said this morning, each and every one of us is commanded to make disciples. We're all, we're all evangelists, we're all teachers, we're all theologians. We're not all going to have the same opportunities, we're not all called to it to the same degree, but we are all called to it. And so to some degree, we have been entrusted by God. God has entrusted to us the gospel. He's entrusted to us our ministry. 
And as such, we've been approved by God. It doesn't matter if you think you're up to the job, quite frankly. God's chosen you anyway. So why do you think you're not up to the job? Well, I do this too much. Then stop doing it. Why else do you think you're not up to the job? Well, I, I, I do far too little of that. Well, then do more of it. Why else do you think I'm up to the job? Well, I'm, I'm just too weak. Well, God will be your strength. You don't have to change the weakness bit. God will just be your strength in your weakness. Moses would say, I can't, I'm, not, I'm not one who can speak. Here, have Aaron. He can speak. But you're doing what I tell you to do. We all have been approved and entrusted. And the fact that that is true is seen in the fact that we have God's Holy Spirit and we have been saved by the blood of the Son. And so he says, um, we improved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so to speak, not to please man, but to please God. Here's the key thing. Above all else in ministry, the desire is to please God. You say, well, hold on a second. Haven't you just been saying that ministry is for other people? Surely, you know, ministry's them for other people. Oh, absolutely, it's for other people. But that doesn't mean you have to please them. Do you see the difference? Let me give you an example. Somebody comes to church and they're in sin. And in a conversation that they have with you, they say, you know, I've been doing this and that. And you say, hey, hey brother, that's, that's the sin. You shouldn't be doing that. What do they do? Well, hopefully, when they're told on the basis of the word of God that they're in sin... That they immediately say, man, I didn't know that was, that was wrong. Where's that in the Bible? Show me. You show me the Bible and say, man, I'm going to have to change my life. Thank you, brother, for helping me with that rebuke. That would be great. But more often than not, they are slow to listen, quick to speak, and quick to anger. We've had people come to this church who've been, to use the, uh, the colloquialism, living in sin, and we've had to address that with them. Didn't please them. Had to address it again. Didn't please them. Had to address it again. Didn't please them. And they left angry and I was the bad guy. I did not please them. But I did it anyway because I pleased God. Because I saw a brother and sister in sin and I lovingly and gently corrected them in their sin and when they wouldn't meet with me, I pushed them to meet with me. And I said, come on, we need to talk. And when they finally met, didn't like what was said, one of them was convicted of sin and wept. But the other was stubborn in their heart and didn't change. I did what I could. How could you leave a brother and sister in Christ living in sin, bringing shame to the name of God, letting the yeast spread through the loaf, Sin spread through the body, giving acceptability of sin, and their own life and their potential future marriage, whether it's to each other or other people, being affected and damaged as a result. How could I leave them there? That wouldn't have been loving. So yes, I did it for them, but I did not please them. So our ministry is for other people, but our ministry does not necessarily please other people. Because when we have the gospel message, we are not to please man, but we're to please God who tests our hearts. You see, when we go and we do the work of ministry and we suffer, when we go and we do the work of ministry and we're shamefully treated, when we go and we do these things and we say, I'm going to do this because it's the truth, because it's what I'm called to do, it's the right thing to do, I'm going to do it because I need to minister to others, and I need to love them, and I need to please God, and I'm going to keep doing it. What God is doing is testing our hearts. And what's happening so much in our midst right now is that we're seeing God on a scale like I haven't seen in ministry for probably ever. Just loads of people having their hearts tested. Why do you minister? Is it, are you coming to church for you or for others? 
Are you doing ministry? And if you're doing ministry, why are you doing that ministry? What are the consequences of that ministry? For what, on what basis do you do that ministry? Is your motive pure? Are you deceiving people? Do you understand the importance of your ministry? All of these kind of issues are being, are being uh, these questions are being exposed. We're being tested. Because the reality is, if we all come to church and we sing, you know, kumbaya, we all love each other, there's no conflict, there's no problems, the government says, oh, you go ahead and have church, let's give you some money as well, do whatever you want, have fun. We love Christians. And you're living in this kind of Christian utopia and everything's going well. You will never know why you do ministry and why you come to church. You'll never know. If you just come to church for religious reasons, if you come to church because your parents came to church, or you come to church because it makes you feel good, or you come to church because you want to be fed and you want to grow, if these are the reasons, they'll never be exposed in a nice, wonderful, warm, cosy environment. But when you throw in conflict, when you throw in a bit of government oppression, when you throw in a bit of COVID, when you throw in the threat of of sickness or even death, when you throw in all these curveballs that we've had over this last year, then people's ministries and their motivation of ministry and, and, their, and their understanding of ministry, these things get exposed. And so it is that Paul is saying that the appeal that they are making is to please God who tests their hearts. And I don't want to spend much time on the latter part of this, but he does say, you know, we never came with words of flattery, see, no attempt to deceive. We never came with a pretext for greed. Again, that's the impurity of heart that that would be. He's just expanding on what he said previously. Notice in verse 5, we never came with words of flattery. As you know, you can be witnesses that we didn't try and deceive you, we didn't try and flatter you. But only God knows our hearts, ultimately. Only God knows whether we were greedy or not. But he goes on to talk about how they worked day and night, so not to be a financial burden on them. There doesn't seem to be any greed there, does it? It says in verse 6, they didn't seek glory from other people, for you or others, though we could have made demands. Isn't that amazing? They're the apostles of Christ. Hey, do you know who I am? They could have insisted on being treated well. They're the apostles. But they made no demands. They didn't seek glory or special treatment. But rather, we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her children being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you have become very dear to us. Philippians chapter 2, mind of Christ. You love other people more than yourself, so you minister to them, even when the cost is high to you, because that is what you are on the earth to do. That, my friends is a high ecclesiology. And so, the questions that we then have as we leave this passage tonight, it's a somewhat briefer one I know, but I hope it's as impactful as it can be. I want us to understand a few things as we leave this passage. Number one, ministry is about other people. It's not about you. When you come to church, do you have affection for your pastor who equips you? Because lots of people in churches do. Or do you have affection for the people around you to whom you're called to minister? And if not, why not? I'm not saying that we have to be best friends equally with every person in the church. And as the church grows, we can't even know everybody as well as everybody else. And then when churches get bigger, you can't know everybody full stop. But that doesn't, doesn't take away the importance of the question. Do you have the affectionate desire for those around you that you care for them with such a longing 
that you need to be at church because there might be an opportunity to minister to one of them, to give them love, to encourage them with a hug, just a smile, to ask how you can pray for them, just to, just to be with people. I know, and I won't name names, I won't embarrass anyone, but you know, I know there's a whole bunch of people that just love coming to church just to be with other people who treat them well. And so just by being here and saying hello to people and smiling at people and making people feel welcome, you're ministering in the most basic of levels. But obviously there's so many other ways in which we can minister. So many ways. Do you understand that ministry is for other people? Kind of putting myself at risk here by saying this, but I think I'm, I think I'm on fairly safe ground in saying this. So let me try. If you go to a church, whoever is hearing this, whenever, year, whenever, if, if, one, if a person, if one goes to church, and at that church they dearly love their pastor, and they go each week because they're looking forward to hearing from their pastor, seeing their pastor. Maybe, they get to, maybe they'll get to speak to them. It's easy for you guys. You'll get to speak to me but if you want. But, but in larger churches, a lot of people don't, don't get to speak to their pastor. Maybe the pastor will speak to them. If you really love your pastor but you don't love other people in the church, then I think that's a really good sign of the fact that you're a Christian. You love the word. That's why you love your pastor. He's feeding you. But you don't get ministry yet. You just don't get ministry a good sign of getting ministry is loving everybody else in the church as well. Caring for them. Being bothered about them. And I think the, the other thing that I want you to take away from this message beyond the fact that ministry is for other people is that you have incredible worth and incredible value. Not in yourself, not a like, you're so important, Jesus loved you so much he died for you kind of stuff. But in the sense that because he has chosen you and he did die for you, he has works prepared for you. He, he, he gave his life that you might minister. You have to understand that. And I think that one of the ways that the enemy of God is so effective in the church is he tells us that we're not really that important. We're no big deal. Well, who am I? You know, well, Anthony's the pastor. He kind of knows the Bible and stuff, you know. And I see Jenny doing worship, and, and Tim does a lot of stuff in the church. And I see these other people doing things. So they're, they're, they're kind of, these, these people do a lot. They've been here for years, and they're really involved. And Rosalind is a missionary. And, and people see these key people, and they think, well, they're the people that matter. Not on my watch, folks. That is not how church is or how church should be. Every single one of us has value. Every single one of us has a reason to be saved in the area of Christian ministry. So there's your two takeaways. Ministry is about other people and not about you. Come to church for other people more than you come to church for yourself. Do you love them? Do you care for them? Do you desire them affectionately? Do you care for them like a mother cares for children? There's your sign of a healthy attitude towards ministry. And secondly, you are of huge value because your ministry is a valuable ministry, whether you recognize it or not. And if you don't understand that, the enemy is lying to you and you are believing those lies. So you put those things together. And that means that even in the midst of conflict, even in the midst of difficulty, even at the, at the prospect of great personal sacrifice, you make sure that you are ministering. And that, yes, there may be times when you're sick and you shouldn't be at church and praise God for live streams. But beyond the most immediate problems and issues like that, we need to be people who don't just attend church, but are committed to church. Committed to humbly serve under the leadership of the church and to minister with the gifts that God's given us under that leadership. That's what we're called to do. So let's just do it. Let's just do it. Maybe we'll have to be let out of Burbank 
with a basket smuggled out of town because people want to kill us. Maybe we'll be stoned to the point of death and we'll hobble away to go away to the hospital for months of intensive surgery and recovery. But I doubt it. But maybe the price will be high in other ways. Maybe we'll suffer loss. Maybe we'll lose friends, lose time. Of course, when you love people, like you're supposed to love them, as you minister to them, you make yourself incredibly vulnerable. Because when those people then mistreat you, if the mistreatment doesn't come just from the enemies of the gospel, but from the people who are your brothers and sisters in Christ, then you feel those blows and those wounds ever more deeply. So often the loss is great. But are we here to please man? Or are we here to please God? Who gave his son that we might live and that we might do those works that he prepared for us, for us to walk in. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your goodness towards us. May we be true ministers. May we preach truth. May we live truth. May we do it with a pure heart. May we not be deceivers. But may you be glorified, God, as we humbly minister to those we love around us, seeking to serve them, suffering loss, for your sake and for your glory. Amen.